It's good to be with you tonight. If you want to have a place in your Bible to ground yourself, uh, open up to Psalm 88. We're only going to be there for a moment. We're going to jump around a lot. And here's what I want you to, enc- to what I want to encourage you to do uh, as you take notes in your notebook or whatever it is that you're writing on is that as a scripture comes up, I I want you to write down that reference and then later you can go back and look at that and see how it fits in the overall context of what the author is talking about. Uh, But as, as Dave said, this is a big, big topic, the topic of suffering. Uh, in fact, uh, apologist Lee Strobel tasked the Barna Group, which is a, a pretty popular research group, to go ask people across all faiths, what is the one question that you would ask God if you were guaranteed the answer? And of all the questions that could be asked of God, 17%, it was the highest percentage, asked this question, God, why is it that you would allow pain and suffering in the world? It is a question that spans religions. It's a question that spans cultures and classes and economic status. We ask this question, why? Strobel went on to say that there are essentially two types of people who ask this question. One are those who are just genuinely, intellectually curious, right? I mean, it's, a hard, it's a hard question to ask. And so we, we dig into the why. In fact, we know that there are people out there who struggle with faith or who have discounted God entirely because they've yet to land on a, a satisfactory answer. How, how can a good and loving God exist when we look around our world and we see so much pain and suffering? And, and that becomes the hurdle. They can't be overcome by the unbeliever who just says, well, if this is the case, then God simply can't exist. But then there are those who ask the question because they themselves are in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain. And it is natural for us in that state and in that season of life to ask the why. Even we who believe in a good and loving God, we sometimes find ourselves in the midst of tragedy and heartache wondering where in the world is God? Does he hear my cries? Does he hear my prayers? And if he does, then why isn't he doing something about this? You know, the Bible is full of those who suffered. And it's full of those who cried out to God. The Psalms are a great example of that. And the reason that I wanted to point your attention to Psalm 88 is because of all the Psalms, I think, in the Bible, Psalm 88 and even 89... They ask this question without a real resolution. Psalm 88 was written by a man named Haman. We can call him He-Man, Haman. He was an Ezraite. And if you look in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, he is listed among the five wisest people of his time. He's, he's compared to King Solomon, who surpassed him. But the, the context is Solomon was even wiser than these guys, which meant that Haman is listed within that, that list of the wisest people of his time. Haman wrote Psalm 88, and he wrote it apparently in the midst of one of these seasons of life, these these seasons of, of great challenge for him. And he begins in verse 1. He says, 
Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. And then he goes on to say, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord? Why do you reject me and hide your face from me? Now, there are psalms that start out that way, the way that Heman began. And by the end of the song, you, you get the, the psalmist understanding that God is right there beside him, that, that there's joy in his heart, even in the midst of his suffering. And, and you expect that out of this psalm, but we don't get it. There's not a turning point in this psalm. There's not a point where he says, you know, I, I'm hurting, but I can feel your presence now. You know what, I've cried out to you enough. I know that you're listening to me and, and, and the pain is gone. And so thank you, Lord. We, we, we just don't see that in this psalm. And I think it invites us into this place where we can, as lovers of God, as believers in God, as those who trust in God, to wonder for a moment whether God is hearing us but the point is that we don't stay there. We do something with this. And that's what I really want to talk about tonight. But I want to start with this question of why. Why is it that we look around our world and we see so much suffering? Because it's no secret that suffering is a part of the human identity. We're talking about identity. Suffering is a part of the human identity. And it almost always has been almost from the very beginning. And I say almost because at the start of the year, we began reading Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And when we looked at Genesis 1, God, God creates everything around us. Everything that we see, God creates. And there's this there's repeating pattern, this refrain in Genesis 1, where Moses writes, God created and it was good. God created and it was good. Right? And then we get to the end of chapter one and God looks around at everything that he created and he describes it as what? Very good. Very good means nothing bad. We can't even fathom what good means in this sense. Very good means nothing bad. Everything operated the way that God originally designed it to. There's no death, there's no pain, there's no weary toil. We get two whole chapters of perfection. Chapter two describes God's creation of mankind, of human beings, and how he places them in this, this very good place where everything works the way that God designed it to work. Adam and Eve would not, even, would not have even had a word for pain. They, they wouldn't have even known what it was. They had no, no context for it whatsoever. But then we read that everything changed in the third chapter. Remember that death entered because sin entered, just as God promised it would. He told them very clearly, if you eat from this tree, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then here is what is going to happen. You will certainly die. And when God says certainly, he means certainly. So he says, this is what's going to happen. And after they ate from that tree and 
God entered the garden and they hid from him. The first recorded death, as Dave talked about last weekend in his sermon, was God killing an innocent animal in order to clothe them and cover up their nakedness and their shame. The second recorded death is Cain murdering his brother Abel out of jealousy. Things escalate pretty quickly from that point. It happens real fast. So we get this refrain, this repeating pattern in chapter one, everything God creates is good. And then when you go to Genesis chapter five, here's the refrain. This person lived this many years, had sons and daughters, and he died. This person lived this many years, had sons and daughters, and he died. Over and over again, death has entered into the picture. Genesis five and Genesis one are polar opposites. Death enters. And just as sin has been snowballing ever since, so has death and suffering. From earthquakes that kill more than 30,000 people in a moment, just buried under the rubble, to tsunamis that kill hundreds of thousands of people, to terrorist attacks, to car wrecks that leave gaping holes in families to cancer and depression and betrayal and divorce and freak accidents and viruses, no matter how far. Think about how far technology has advanced in the last hundred years. That no matter how far technology advances, no matter how our lives become comfortable, no matter how far we, we excel in the field of medical science, no matter how many diseases we cure, no matter how safety features our cars have or how strong our police force is, we will never solve the problem of pain in this world. Because the last I checked, the death rate is one out of one. 100% of people die. And as much as we wanna blame God for the horrible things that happen around us and the horrible things that happen to us, the reality is that these things are simply a result of the rebellion that started all the way back in Genesis chapter three. And they've been continuing ever since. There's no way around this. It is part of our world. And it will continue to be a part of the human identity until Jesus returns and sets everything back to the way it was in Genesis 1 and 2. We blame God so often for suffering because we forget how big of a role sin plays in the brokenness of the world. Not, not, not suffering as a punishment for individual sins, but suffering as a result of our rejection of God. It just is. But what about Christians? What about those who seem to be favored by God as his very own children? Why is it that we have to suffer? Why doesn't the pain and sorrow of this world pass over us like many of those plagues passed over the, the Hebrew people and affected only the Egyptians? See, we can look around and we know that, that this isn't the case because every Christian in this room has felt pain. Every single one of us, from disappointment to rejection and betrayal and disease and the loss of loved ones, there is no end to what we can experience. In fact, throughout the course of Christian history, it would seem that Christians over all of humanity, 
or the ones who choose to trust God have had to endure more than the world has had to endure. When we look at the history of the church, we look at the stories we read in our Bibles, and Christians have to endure more because the reality is that suffering is a part of the Christian identity. It's not just humanity. It's part of our lives as those who have chosen to follow Christ. Why wouldn't it be? When at the center of our faith is the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53. It's one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies relating directly to Jesus. And when you have time, go to Isaiah 53, go to Isaiah 52, and read all the way through to 54. You will be amazed at seeing Jesus in those passages. Written hundreds of years before Jesus came. But Isaiah looked ahead and he described Jesus as a man of suffering, a man familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After his death and resurrection, you might remember uh, Jesus encounters two men on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about the things that had just happened, this man who had been put on the cross and crucified and how uh, people had been reporting that he had come back to life. And Jesus encounters these men and they don't recognize who he is. And they say, Haven't, are you the only one in this area who has not heard about these things? And, and Luke tells us that Jesus, beginning with the Old Testament, beginning with the prophets, opened up for them the word and, and explained how all of this had been about him. And then he said this, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? See, the, the, the cornerstone of our faith, Jesus himself the very son of God in the flesh was made to suffer, had to suffer. So if that's the case, then why is it that I should expect something different out of my life? When, when the one that I love and the one that I follow and the one that I've chosen to be my Lord and King and Savior said, in this world, you will have trouble. That, that, that was a guarantee. That was a promise. That wasn't a, a you might this will probably happen to you, but in this world, you will have trouble. Paul affirms it for us in Philippians 1.29. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. In Romans 8.17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. See, Christians suffer more because we have an added layer of suffering. We, we have the suffering that comes with the identity of the world, all of those things that, that can happen in a moment's notice, that call that we can get in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day that says this, this has happened, right? We, we have that that happens to everybody, but Christians have this other layer, this layer of suffering that comes as a direct result of being a Christian, of persecution, now, now, you and I haven't had to face persecution in the same way that maybe others have, but, but we face it. Right? We, we face those who are not just against our faith, but are against us because of our faith. 
And so we have this added layer. We have all these things that happen to us that can happen to the world. We have these other things that are unique only to us. Every generation of Christian has experienced this. It's not new. The problem is that we live in a world, and particularly in our Western culture today, where we suffer very little compared to other places in the world and other people in those places who seek to follow Jesus. Now, we can experience intense pain, but what I'm saying is in general, we suffer less. At the end of this evening, I'll, I'll, I'll get in my comfortable truck and I'll drive to my comfortable home and I'll lay in my comfortable bed, relatively pain-free, unless something catastrophic and unexpected happens between now and then. Right, that's what I'm talking about. Carl Truman, a professor of biblical studies, argues that while we may not directly preach health, wealth, and prosperity like some of the other notable preachers of the prosperity gospel, these idols have more subtly worked their way into our churches and caused us to forget that suffering has always been a part of our identity. He, he looked at popular Christian music today and he asked the question, what can miserable Christians sing? Like, like when I look at the, the happy choruses of Christian music and, and, I, and I praise God that, that here we praise God in our worship. We, we are very careful about the songs that we choose so that our songs are not focused internally. They are focused on God and what he has accomplished through Christ. But when you listen to Christian radio, there are plenty of songs out there that do not do that. And so he asks the question, what can miserable Christians sing? That when we are faced with the worst kind of suffering because of something that is out of our control, something that has happened as a result of our faith, it doesn't always do our hearts good to have a happy and upbeat chorus as if we can sing ourselves out of depression and into happiness. Because sometimes we just need to lament our situation and lean into God in the midst of it. That's what we see happening over and over and over in our Bibles. That's what, that's what Psalm 88 and 89 are about. Lamenting the situation, leaning into God. And unlike the generations before us, we have forgotten how to do this. And our tolerance for suffering has taken the brunt of our forgetfulness that we've forgotten it. But if we can accept these realities, that the suffering is a result of living in a fallen and broken world and that Christians have this added element of, of guaranteed pain on some level, then the question shifts from why to how. We, we can stop asking God why he's allowed certain things, no doubt things that are, are difficult, and we can start asking the more important question, which I think is, how do I suffer? If this is inevitable, if this is going to happen, then what do I do with it? What is my identity when I hurt? That's the question that we ask. See, I think there's much more value in this than the why. Because answering the question of why doesn't change the situation. It doesn't remove the pain, but answering the question of how, it changes my heart in the midst of the pain. It gets me to a place where I can understand in greater, with greater clarity what it is that God is doing through the pain, not why it happened in the first place. And I, and I want to give you several truths out of God's word that I, I think help us answer this question in the short amount of time we have to get us to 
think more about what it is that God is leading us toward when suffering comes. And the first is this, that God promises his presence in your suffering. King David wrote Psalm 34. Again, we see this all over the Psalms. At a time in his life when he was being pursued by King Saul. Remember how David's life started or how the account of his life started. Right? He's anointed by God as the next king over Israel, but King Saul is still the king. And, and David is brought into King Saul's uh, uh, home and begins to win all these battles. And King Saul realizes that this is the next king. And so he wants to end David's life. David is described as a man after God's own heart, which means that with some definitely notable exceptions, King David had his will lined up with the will of God. And yet, at the beginning of all of this, he is faced with a maniac who is bent on ending him. After one particular episode in which David's life was spared, and you can go back and read it for yourself in 1 Samuel 21, David wrote Psalm 34. And he starts with, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, this is not a bright and sunny period in David's life, but look at how he starts. It's a call for those who are afflicted to praise God and rejoice. Why? How can they do this? Verse 18 tells us. Because the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. That verse right there got me through a really difficult time last year. That the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Throughout the stories of our Bibles, you find God nearest to those who are hurting the most. Elijah in the cave when he ran from Jezebel. Moses at the burning bush as he's in exile and stranger. Jeremiah left for dead in a cistern. Joseph in the dungeon. Stephen as he was being stoned to death. John receiving his vision of heaven as he's exiled to the island of Patmos, suffering. And God is there with his people in the midst of it. In fact, if you ask those inside this very church who have experienced great loss and tragedy, when it is they felt the presence of God the most, those who lean into it will tell you that it was in the midst of the worst kind of pain that a human can endure. See, it's during the easy times that we tend to forget that God is even there. Perhaps like me, you've gotten through one of those great days. The sun has been shining all day. It's 75 degrees outside. You got everything on your to-do list done. You had great interactions with people. Nobody yelled at you. Man, if I just get through a day where nobody yells at me, that's a win, right? So, so we, we get through these, these great days and then we get to the end of the day and we realize, you know what? I've not given a thought to God at all today because it's all me. I've gotten through this on my own. And it's why God calls us to daily fellowship with him so that we recognize that on the good days, on the bad days, we should be leaning into him. We should know of his closeness. But there is something particularly sweet about knowing of his closeness in the midst of pain. Of knowing when I'm hurting the most, when I am brokenhearted, that God is near 
And so we lean into him when that pain comes. And like Haman, the, the Israelite, you may not feel his presence. We don't, we don't always get the warm and fuzzies, do we? Like, I, I don't feel God right here next to me, but man, this is a promise that he has given me and God keeps his promises. And he says, if you're brokenhearted, then I'm right there with you. I'm right there for you to lean into and for you to grab a hold of, even if you don't feel me there. And even if it doesn't seem like I'm hearing you, I'm right there next to you. And so God is close to us when we suffer. Secondly, suffering reminds us that we can't get by on our own strength. There's a verse that's commonly misquoted by well-intentioned people who are trying to make other people feel good. We say some really stupid things when we are trying to make people feel okay in the midst of their suffering. And we'll misquote this passage and we'll say, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There's an important distinction between those two understandings. Because the way the verse is read is God is not going to let me be tempted to a point where sin is just inevitable. Now, now I can get to a point where I allow myself to, to be put in a place where I can't turn back. But God says that he's gonna provide a way out. He removes the excuse for sin even when temptation is hard. We often say God's not gonna give you more than you can bear. And I think in a general sense, we are given more by God than we can handle on our own. I believe that that does actually happen. Now, that's not an easy thing to say to somebody. You talk to someone who has lost a child of any age, and you'll talk to someone who has been faced with unbearable pain. That is pain that cannot be bared. There isn't even a name for it. A person who loses their spouse is a widow. A person who loses their parents is an orphan. But there is not a name for a person who loses their child. And so to that person, it isn't helpful to misquote Scripture and speak an empty phrase into the air as if it solves the whole problem. When the truth is that God often gives us things that we on our own, and that's the key, we on our own cannot bear, cannot hold up, cannot handle. But the point is not that he is trying to destroy us or break us down, but rather is inviting you, inviting you to rely on his strength in those situations where it is too much. That's why Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, who are weary and heavy laden, who have a weight on their backs that they can't carry on their own. And I'll do what? I will give you rest. That's the promise that Jesus has given. What need do I have to come to him and hand my burden over if I could just carry it on my own? Or Paul, when facing a challenge in his own life, and he, and he prayed that God would take it from him. How many times have you prayed that? God, take this from me. Don't, don't make me go through this. I, I've prayed that for people. God, I know this situation, and I don't want this person to have to experience it. And so, Lord, do something here. We've prayed for God to take it away. But Paul recounts Jesus' words when Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. 
How would we ever know of God's sufficient grace and power in our weakness if we could handle every hurt that this life could throw at us? Several years ago, I was in the home of somebody who had just lost someone. And they said, God thinks I'm strong, but I'm not strong. And the reality is that God knows we're weak. He knows we can't handle these things because he wants us to carry it. He wants us to come to him and say, God, I'm not strong enough for this. And him to say, I know. That's why I'm gonna get you through it. That's why I'm gonna carry you in the midst of this. That's why I want you to come to me when you are weary and heavy laden so that I can give you rest. He wants us to know of his strength. And we experience that strength mostly in the really hard times, not in the really easy ones. Third, suffering gives us hope. Now that's a little more difficult for us to kind of wrap our minds around. How in the world is it that my pain causes me to hope? But look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter five. And Paul writes, we glory in our sufferings, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, he draws a line from suffering to hope, but there's a couple steps to get there. There's this natural progression from trials and tribulations, which produces inside of us perseverance. Well, what is perseverance? It's the ability to endure. And we only gain perseverance by enduring so that we can see that we can endure more. That's what perseverance is. So trials produce perseverance and perseverance produces character. Not not the kind of character that the world says is right, but the kind of character that God says is right. The kind of character that that is willing to lean into these truths in his word and and rely on him. It's the kind of character that God calls us to and ultimately this character leads us to a kind of hope that does not disappoint. It does not put us to shame because God has always proven himself faithful to those who lean into him. He gives us hope when we lean into his will for us. We hope because we know that it's God's love that has been poured out to us through his Holy Spirit no matter what trial comes our way. And so yes, in the midst of suffering, I can have hope provided I look to the right place for it. And that leads to the next thing, that suffering allows us to comfort others with what we have received. That if suffering eventually produces hope and I receive hope in my suffering, then I can come alongside others and comfort them with that same comfort and with that same hope. Now, this isn't something that necessarily happens immediately, although it can. I've seen people who have gone through the worst kind of thing and immediately they can turn it around and do something with it. But for others, it takes a little bit of time. Takes a little bit of time to get there. But once you lean into suffering in a way that leads to perseverance and perseverance to character and character hope, then you will be equipped to walk beside others who are going through the same kinds of things that you are going through. It turns sympathy into empathy. 
I can sympathize with someone who has lost his wife, meaning that I can hurt for him, but it's only when I go through that same kind of pain that I can empathize and hurt with him. You hear the difference? That God has given me something unique that not everybody has. And now he's gonna allow me to turn that around and use it for his glory as I walk beside somebody else. That's what Paul meant when he said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our trials so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received from God. You know, up to this year, I couldn't walk beside parents who had faced an anxious child but my goodness, we've walked through it this year. And I hope that God will allow me to use that in some capacity to encourage others and to help them walk through it. Because once you've gone through great loss and you felt the nearness of God and you have experienced what it is to rely on his strength and been comforted by him and now you have hope in it, you are able to take that experience and walk alongside others whose wounds are maybe just a little more fresh than yours. Right, the, the wound is still there. We still hurt. There, there are hurts that will never fully go away for us. But maybe that person, it's, it's just a little fresher. And God has allowed us to use what he's done for us. It's part of the beauty of the church. That God has given us, with the knowledge that pain is simply a part of our life, that we can use that as a means to shoulder one another's burdens, to lift one another up, to care for one another, and to love one another until we leave this world and enter into eternity. The church is a gift of God to be able to do that. I sat with a family in their home several years ago who had just started coming and they were interested uh, in the church and they just had some questions for me. And as I sat with them on the couch. They told me about the challenges they had. They, they, they were believers, that they had hope, they loved the Lord, but there were things that had come up in their life. She was facing a, a chronic, painful illness that if not taken care of in the right way could end her life. He was facing debilitating back pain that, that had him on the brink of medical retirement and, and a surgery ahead of him. And, and they asked that, that question that we get, why? Why would God cause this? Why would God allow this in our life? And I looked at them and I said, I, I don't know why. I, I don't know why it is that you've had to suffer this particular set of circumstances when, when other people can go their whole lives and, and be relatively healthy. I don't know the exact why, but I'm sure thankful that we don't have to go through it alone. I'm sure thankful that there are others who have faced this and who come out on the other side stronger and more hopeful and now God has invited to come alongside me and do it. We do not carry it alone. That's why God has given us the church. And the final truth that I want you to grab hold of is this. That suffering reminds us that this is not our home. And we need that reminder that there is something much greater waiting for us. I've mentioned before that I have a friend who is a staunch atheist. No, no belief in God whatsoever. He's unapologetic about it. He knows my faith. And occasionally we had these conversations, but I've had this thought before that 
if this man had to face tragedy in his life, I would find it incredibly difficult to comfort him. The, the most difficult funerals to preach are the ones where you know the person in the casket had no relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're not going to lie to them and lie to their family and tell them that things are better for this person. We can't because it negates the whole thing. And so I don't know how I would comfort him because if he lost his wife tomorrow and I don't wish any kind of ill on him, but if he lost his wife tomorrow, he would have to live the rest of his life knowing in his heart that he would never see her again. And yet if I lost my wife tomorrow, I would get to live the rest of my life knowing that this is not all there is. Do you see the difference? The difference that is wrapped up in the hope of suffering for one who knows God and knows that there is something greater than this place that we are in right now. That one day, one day we will be in his presence and that God has promised us that in that place, not only is there no more pain and hurt and suffering, but every single pain that we have experienced in this life will make us all the more grateful for the one that's to come. That's what God is inviting us to. That, that's where hope comes from. Now we face awful things in this life. Things that are out of our control, things that are in our control, persecution, Yet Peter says that these have come so that the proven genuineness of our faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And that is the final hope for us. How do we suffer? We do it knowing that something better is coming. That for the believer, this is as close as we'll ever be to hell. And on the other side is eternity in the presence of God where all will be made right and we will be with those who we love again. But more importantly than that, we will be in the presence of Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have in the midst of our suffering. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, I, I hope, I hope that I have dealt with this topic in a way that honors you and is truthful to your word. And that if there is someone in this room who is right now in the midst of the worst kind of pain, or that I've not said something that would turn them away from you, but God, I've said something that would help them lean into you and give them hope even in the midst of things that, things that we can't bear the things that all of us will eventually face in some way or another. Lord, may we be a people who take even the pain, God, even the pain, and use it for your glory. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the church and the fact that we don't suffer alone. We do it knowing that you're near to us and we do it knowing that others, God, have walked through the same valley that we have. We love you, Father, and we give you the glory for these things. Amen.